Section 17 of Gallipoli Diary. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. Gallipoli Diary by John Graham Gillum. Section 17. September 18th to October 10th, 1915. September 18th. It has been very quiet this morning. The work of getting supplies on shore, carting them up to the main supply depot, and from there to the several divisional depots, goes on now, day and night, like a well-managed business. The main supply depot is rapidly accumulating a reserve of supplies for us to fall back on, should bad weather set in and prevent us landing on some days. I learn that we now have sufficient preserved food in the main depot to feed 60,000 men and 5,000 animals on shore for a month, and soon there will be stores for six weeks. At five o'clock the Turks sprang a surprise bombardment onto the left of our line, and simultaneously, just as I was walking the few yards from our supply depot to our men, four 18-pounder shrapnel burst overhead. All about the depot dive for cover, and many of them rush into our dugout, it being the most handy. A minute only, and four more come, burst overhead, the bullets rattling on the shrapnel-proof roof. Foley is with me. Way and Carver are up on the cliff in a safe spot. Petro is up on the high ground behind our dugout, having gone there to watch a battleship firing onto Burnt Hill, while Phillips is down on the beach, looking after a water cart, Never before have we had 18-pounder shrapnel burst as far up the promontory as this, and we are naturally surprised how the Turks could have pushed one of their batteries so close up to get the range. As fast as we put our heads out to see if Phillips or Petro is about, a salvo of four shells arrives over, most of them bursting in the neighborhood of our depot, and a few on the beach further over to the left. No one is about all have gone to ground like rabbits. They give it to us hot and strong for fifteen minutes and then stop. All the time the battleships have been firing, and I think must have got on to this particular battery. We cautiously come out of our dugout and look about. Gradually, men all over the beaches appear from all directions and go about their respective jobs. Petro turns up from a dugout close by, beaming all over his face, and says that he had done a hundred-yard sprint over boulders and rocks in record time, at the finish making a beautiful head-dive into the nearest dugout that he could see, onto a half-dozen Tommies crouching inside. We then see Phillips limping up from the beach, being helped by two Tommies. I run down to him, and we go to the 11th Division Casualty Clearing Station. We unwind the putty of his left leg, which had been hit, when a shrapnel bullet rolls out and runs along the floor like a marble. I pick it up and put it in his pocket. It had drilled a hole clean through his leg, just above the ankle, through which blood is pouring freely. He is bound up and, though in great pain, perspiration pouring off his face, keeps smiling and cheerful. One of the most painful parts of the body to be hit is just above the ankle. When the first four shells burst, he fell flat behind a big boulder, which protected all of him but his long legs, and after the third or fourth salvo, he felt the sledgehammer blow of a bullet, 
and knew he was hit. Lying there wounded while other shells burst overhead was a beastly experience for him, and he thanked his stars when it was all over. With one arm around my shoulder he leans on me and slowly limps back to our dugout, I hoping that they won't burst out again. I lay him on my bed. The swarms of flies that are with us always now buzz round the wound, which I cover up with muslin. I go up to O'Hara to tell him, and find there some of our divisional headquarters staff, just back from the line, having had to clear quickly when the attack opened. When O'Hara gets back with me, we find Phillips has gone off, assuring the others that he will be back in a month. The Turkish gunners were too quick for old Phillips this time, giving him no chance to read their minds. But, thank the Lord, he is wounded and not gone west. I miss him tonight and feel depressed, and wonder how long I shall remain on this God-forsaken place, or how long it will be before my turn comes to get hit. It is now a beautiful moonlight night, quiet, calm, and still, and an enemy aeroplane sails over, making a circle of the bay. I have got an idea that the old Turk is laughing at us now. September 19th. A fairly quiet day. Beautiful, calm, moonlight night. Have to get water up from A Beach to Delisle's Gully, ready for the 86th, who arrive tomorrow. Thank heaven it is moonlight. Go up first to headquarters of brigade by car. Country smells lovely. We have not been here long enough yet to spoil the land. Hardly a rifle shot in front. Go over to Delisle's Gully and back to division headquarters, up to brigade again, and once more, then to the gully, arriving home at midnight. Actually enjoyed the trip, but looking at the calm sea and moon and the landscape of mountain and gorse, with the continual chirping of the crickets, how I longed, craved, and yearned for the day when peace will be declared. September 20th. Turks shell us unceasingly all morning, several shells coming near our depot, but they are only light shells, and many of them do not explode. A Newfoundland regiment joins our brigade. They get shelled while on the beach, just an hour after landing, and suffer casualties. They appear to look upon it as a huge joke. Way and Carver come back. 86th Brigade due from Imbros tomorrow. Hear that Captain Coble, who came over with me from Alexandria at the end of July, has died of wounds. We became great friends on board the Anglo-Egyptian in July. Go up to Brigade by night. Beautiful moonlight night again. Go up by car. Nothing doing. Latcher joins us now, in place of Phillips. September 21st. Fairly quiet today, so far though just as I go over to depot this morning, several shells fly overhead. Horrid feeling when you are in the open. Very fine day, but flies terrible. All quiet on front. Exactly a month now since last battle. September 22nd. All quiet up to 3.30 p.m. when we had a very bad shelling, and there were several casualties in the valley. Fortunately, it only lasted half an hour. Our men are busy making shrapnel-proof head cover. One gun somewhere by Seri Bear is very fond of chucking over to our camps on this promontory, 5-9 shrapnel. One does not hear the boom of the gun, which I think must be a howitzer. The first warning one has of the thing coming is a sound like someone blowing with his lips 
very softly. This gets louder and louder, until, with a cat-like shriek and bang, it explodes over one's head. Having to depend on being warned by such a common sound is, of course, the cause of many false alarms. In fact, a man blowing with his lips is sufficient to make another man cock his ears and listen. September 23rd. A quiet day, but for the usual cannonading on both sides, a few five-nine shrapnel shells coming our way at four in the afternoon. Reinforcements arriving daily, a cold gale blowing all day. At six we have another bout of shelling, while we are loading up army transport carts, one shell pitching right in our depot and one of our poor chaps being badly hit, from which he is not expected to recover. He has since died, a nice boy, only nineteen. September 24th. A quiet morning. News reaches us that Bulgaria is in, but whether for us or against us is uncertain. Naturally, therefore, there is a feeling of great anxiety prevalent. We hope to have more definite news tonight. Heavy gale blowing this morning, calming down later. A very quiet day. No shells coming our way. At Anzac, at eight tonight, a bit of a severe battle took place, probably a Turkish attack. There was a continual roar of musketry and shells bursting on the side of Seri Bear. It was a surprise attack on the part of the New Zealanders, and so far has proved successful. Firing developed along our front from Chocolate Hill, and a feeble Turkish attack started in front of our brigade, the Worcesters taking the blow. It was with ease beaten off and died away after half an hour. We lost about twelve men. September 25th. A quiet day. Just the usual artillery duels, no shells coming our way. Walked up to brigade headquarters in the evening. Battalion of the London Regiment joins brigade. Lovely moonlight night. Rather a lot of firing on our front and bullets a bit free. Meet Stuart and Latchard at brigade, Stuart having come to relieve Latchard, who is going back to Hellas. Walked back together. A bright flash from the Swiftshire in the bay denotes that she has fired one of her big guns and a few seconds after a loud report is heard, and the rumble of a shell as it passed over Seri Bear, on to somewhere, goes on for a long time before one hears the distant report of its burst. I hear the sound of propellers overhead, and think I can see the airship from Imbro sailing over towards Anafarta. The Swiftsure fires once more, and then all is quiet for an hour. Then a Turkish battery puts a shell over to us, and follows this up with one every ten minutes, continuing for an hour. September 26th. Awakened in the morning by the 5-9 shrapnel coming over and bursting overhead, and we are subjected to an hour of it. None of our men hit, but about four mules hit. A beautiful day and sea calm. Work of unloading stores proceeds apace. Artillery duels, but no shells come our way till four, when one shell bursts uncomfortably near. One feels a bit shaky for an hour after such an event, but we have got to stick it. September 27th. A very fine day, but a trifle hot. The flies seem to be swarming more than ever, and they are a great plague. Usual artillery duel from the batteries on shore and the fleet in the bay. Seeing a lot of Arthur McDougall now, an awfully nice boy in Middlesex yeomanry, Hear that O'Hara, our deputy assistant quartermaster general, is leaving the division. All of us very sorry to lose him. 
has got a lieutenant colonelcy at general headquarters and deserves the push-up. At 7.30 p.m., a burst of rifle fire started at Chocolate Hill. All the batteries on shore took it up. The warships in the bay joined in, battleships and monitors and the like, and such an infernal din is now heard that the whole peninsula seems to shake, and the evening sky is studded with innumerable flashes, right away to Anzac and beyond. It is very impressive and lasts for an hour and a half. It turned out to be all panic. There has been good news of the French in Champagne. Somebody in the trenches cheered. Everybody else let his rifle off, and then the whole pandemonium started. The Turk never replied at all, and there was no attack. The moon shining peacefully above must have smiled at the folly of man this night. Go up to brigade with Carver and Stewart. Moonlight night, the bay looking beautiful and quite enjoyable, except over the bullet-swept area. Called at 86th headquarters on the way back, and picked up way, and had a chat with Thompson, who has just come back from staying at Athens for a few days. September 28th. Wood of the Essex Regiment comes in early, and I give him a bed and breakfast and have a long chat about life here. Has just come back from a month's leave. Now has his majority. Get up to see O'Hara off. Peaceful morning. Beaches represent hives of industry. Engineers busy making a pier out of a sunken ship their hammers reminding one of the happy days of civilian life in the work towns of the north and center of England. An Indian shepherd is guarding his flock of sheep, destined to be slaughtered for the Indian troops, in front of our dugout on the slopes of the hill, while the distant roar of guns can be heard further south. Cook arrives from Hellas to join us. Hear that Collier is leaving us, so that we are now without a major or a colonel. Go up to headquarters in car at nine, with a London regiment officer and Arthur McDougall. Very bumpy ride. Find Stuart there. A bullet has knocked Stuart's hat off, but he does not seem to be upset much, and when he gets back just calmly sews up the two burnt holes. Getting water up to troops still entailing a lot of worry and work. The water is pumped from lighters through a pipe which dips into the sea, Yesterday, water was very salt, as seawater had got in. Was very ill in the night through this. Called up in night as water carts had gone to wrong place, and a further supply had to be sent up. This water business is the worst of all. All the animals have to be taken down to water at the usual times. A transport officer from the depot here, who has been down to see me once or twice on business, has told me that, in his opinion, the most trying duty of all is seeing the animals watered. The troughs are in full sight of the Turkish gunners, and the long lines of dust emerging from the transport gully give the clue. He tells me that this is when he gets jumpy. Absolutely in the open, water trickling into the troughs slowly, and he has to stand and see that every beast has enough. Then the shelling starts, mules fall, but still the others must have their fill and not be hurried, and it seems like hours, and some of the beasts all unconscious, appearing as if they will never finish. It must be a merry job, and it has to be done three times a day. An officer has to be present, or the overwhelming temptation to hurry up and get off becomes too much for the men, and no wonder. 
September 29th. Camp Commandant comes to inform us that we have to clear out of our place, which is comparatively safe, and move to an exposed position further inland, in full view of the Turks. We shall be absolutely shelled out if we have a supply depot there, with army transport carts and motor lorries coming to and fro from main supply depot all day, and it will cripple our work. Hope to get this order cancelled. Have told division headquarters who have promised to see camp commandant. Usual artillery firing all day, and ship's guns joining in. Submarines have been busy. One French transport sunk, and two British, one empty and one containing Gurkhas and Punjabis. Swiftsure had a narrow escape the other day, two torpedoes just missing her. September 30th. A very fine day, not a cloud in the sky, very hot, and flies now in myriads perfectly appalling. See Camp Commandant as to moving our supply depot to the exposed part of the peninsula. Finally he gives way and finds another and safer place for us at the foot of Ninth Corps Gully. Hardly any shelling from Turks, but our guns busy and battleships as well. Go up to brigade in evening, quiet night, and so in September a deadly month. No movement on our part all the month, no action, except little minor stunts such as straightening our line, digging saps, bombing expeditions, and artillery duels. All the time we steadily lose killed and wounded, and a seriously large percentage of sick, and we drift and drift on. To where? October 1st. A very misty morning, everything hidden in the valleys, also the ships in the harbor. At one o'clock we are shelled by high explosives and five-nine shrapnel, and it lasts an hour. Very unpleasant. I hate the shelling more and more as time goes on. Some mysterious move is going on. The 87th, now at Imbros, have wired for their machine guns, and rumors that troops have left here during the last two nights are about. Has Bulgaria come in against us? October 2nd. A beautiful, cool summer day, but flies still swarming about. Artillery very busy on our side. In afternoon, walk up with Stuart to brigade headquarters. Beautiful country walk through gorse, little hills and dales, trees and olive groves. On arrival at brigade headquarters and looking back, the scene is beautiful, with the bay shimmering in the sun, and the fleet and transports lying at anchor. The formidable hills in front look beautiful also, and hardly a rifle shot comes from the Turkish lines. But all the time our shore batteries and the ships are booming away, but feebly replied to by the Turks. On the way up we just miss coming under the beastly 5-9 shrapnel. We stay to tea with Haddow, the staff captain, now major, and have a nice walk back. Arriving on the promontory, we see them shelling the road that we have passed along. We find on our return that the beaches have been strafed again by high explosives, killing and wounding a few. October 3rd. A quiet, beautiful Sunday morning, the sea like glass. I have lunch with McDougall halfway up the high ground of the promontory outside his dugout, right behind large boulders of stone. He provides us an excellent lunch and we might be on holiday together. No firing of any kind. After lunch, however, shore batteries and ships get active, while the distant rumble of guns is heard from Hellas. 
At four we have our daily ration of the five-nine shrapnel, or whistling Rufus. We move our supply depot up to the foot of the gully, at the head of which is Ninth Corps headquarters. October 4th. Heavy Turkish bombardment takes place at nine o'clock this morning over Anzac, developing towards Chocolate Hill. At ten, rifle fire starts, denoting a Turkish attack, but in half an hour it dies away, the Turks having been beaten off. During this time we are shelled by high explosives, and, remaining in our dugouts as we hear each shell coming over our way, we cannot help gently ducking our heads. It is instinct, but yet very funny. We must look like nodding Chinese idols. In the afternoon we have nine-inch shells thrown over to us, but it only lasts half an hour. Go up to brigade headquarters, not much firing in front. October 5th. A beautiful summer day again. Turks shell us from 8 a.m. till 10 a.m., but all duds. No news and no prospect of any progress in this campaign. Our airplanes up. At 9.30 a.m. the Turks begin and are busy all day with their shells. Our batteries do not reply much, and the battleships are practically silent all day. We have no shrapnel, though, but at four o'clock about a dozen nine-inch high explosives come over, and rather too near us to be pleasant. One shell pitched right in one of my battalion dumps, the first London, just arrived from Malta, and attached to our brigade. We are therefore moving them to a safer place. In our camp now we have two supply sections of the 86th and 88th Brigades, and representatives of each regiment in the brigades, consisting of a quartermaster or his sergeant, and a corporal and three privates. They look after the interests of their respective regiments on the beach, drawing supplies, ordnance, royal engineer stores, letters, and baggage, which they escort up to the regiment each night by the mule carts. New officers arriving and officers returning from hospital use our camp as a halfway house to the trenches. All drafts arriving are met by these battalions' representatives and looked after, generally by day, and guided to their units by night. Had a lovely bathe this morning with McDougall, Tooth, Carver, and Way at the foot of the cliffs. Very peaceful and beautiful, and it was hard to realize that there was a war on. In the far distance, across the Gulf of Saros, could just be discerned the coast of Bulgaria, the country on which the eyes of all the world are turned at the moment. In a day or two we shall know whether she has joined our enemies or not. October 6th. Woke up at seven by a shell whistling over our dugout, but no more follow. Curious how, when one is sleepy, shells do not strike fear in one. A perfect summer morning. Artillery on our side very active. Go on board Swiftsure for lunch with Carver, guest of Fleet Surgeon Jeans, a charming little man, had a glass of beer, and the lunch, nice white tablecloth, attentive stewards, excellent food and cheery society, topping fellows. Half an hour after lunch had a puka hot bath, the luxury thereof, and then take snapshots of the ship and of a group of officers. We get a good view of Suvla from the deck, the sandy beach, and to the left the three landing places, crowded with lighters, launches, etc., and with khaki figures. Further to the left, the rocky part, with its fringe of surf, and the frowning crags above, towering away in masses into the blue distance. 
Behind the landing places the ground slopes abruptly up to the gorges, crowded with dugouts and transport lines. To the right, Lalababa with its sandy cliffs and the low plateau beyond with the salt lakes stand out clearly. Further to the right, one catches a glimpse of Sea Beach with its white hospital tents along the sea's rim, and in the offing, silent and slim, loom the three hospital ships taking in their freight of broken humanity. There are never less than three such ships of mercy here, which gives one some idea of the daily human wastage when one remembers that they are big P&O and British India liners. We are told by one of the gunnery lieutenants that, at 4 p.m., ship is going to fire on a blockhouse just by the pimple on the left of our line. While on board, the ship's guns loose off. It is a curious sensation. We watch their shells bursting inland and realize for the first time the difference between shelling and being shelled. Get back on smart pinnace at 2.30. Get shelled a bit at 3.30. Go up to British headquarters to watch the pimple bombardment. At four, precisely, Swiftsure pops off with 12-inch and 6-inch guns, also Prince George and a monitor, and the shore batteries. Up the Gulf of Saros, a torpedo boat, destroyer, and monitor are firing in flank. Poor old pimple. Can't see it for dust and smoke. Prince George has a premature burst, splinters doing ducks and drakes across the bay. Hear machine guns at five, ceasefire at six, and we go back home. The little coves at end of point are now absolutely altered from their original geographical formation by the engineers during the past months. Breakwaters, piers, dugout offices, stores depots, landing stages, etc., have come into being, and they are now hives of industry, never slacking night and day. As at Hellas, star shells sail up and down gently all night along our line, in the darkness of the sky over Seri Bear, the reflection of the rays of Chanak's searchlight plays, but not so brightly as seen from Hellas. October 7th. Ships firing very early this morning. Swiftsure left last night. Soon after 10 this morning, Turkish 8-2 gun opens fire on the Prince George, and at the third shot hit her. Prince George and the other ship open fire. Later, the Prince George is hit again, this time just beneath the funnels, causing wreckage among boats. She alters her position, the duel still continuing. She is hit twice again, and then moves further out. Turkish gun then shuts up. Soon after 11 a.m., the 5-9 shrapnel comes whistling over to us, and nine of them, one after the other, at short intervals of two or three minutes, burst over our camp and the beaches, causing casualties. A beautiful summer day again, but flies as bad as ever. I walk with Way to Brigade, his brigade headquarters having moved just in front of ours. As we go up, we hear a whopping big shell go over to the beach, and looking back we see it burst, kicking up a great deal of dust. Have tea with Thompson and General Percival. Afterwards call in at 88th and walk back at dark. A bullet hits a bush at Way's feet, just as we are walking over the little bit of hillock after leaving 88th headquarters. A few others drop nearby. Way tells me that when bullets are about, his head always feels ten times as big as it really is, yet he never worries at all when shells are about. It is curious, but shells make me feel very uneasy and limp, 
while bullets don't bother me at all now. The ways of nerves are difficult to understand. When we arrive back, we find that the beaches have been strafed a lot in our absence. 9 p.m. A bit of a strafe is taking place at Anzac. Heavy rifle fire and shells bursting. Very fine sight, seeing the white flashes of flame bursting out of the black night. October 8th. All today there have been ceaseless artillery duels, warships and shore batteries taking part. Never before have we had such shelling from the Turks at Suvla. It has been one continual roar of guns from early morning till dusk. At last dusk arrives, which is welcomed with general thanksgiving by the majority on the beach. News has just come in that Bulgaria and Russia are practically at war, and this means that in a few days Bulgaria will be an active enemy of ourselves as well. The Bulgars no doubt will join the Turks at once, and life on the beaches will become a hell in the true sense of the word. I hope that we shall keep our end up and not be ignominiously defeated on this peninsula. There have been about sixty casualties today, killed and wounded, yet the work on the beach has to go steadily on all the time. It has been much colder today, and some rain has fallen. At night we have very heavy rain. October 9th. A cool summer day, shelled at 9.30 p.m. Troops arrive in large numbers. They should have arrived last night at dark, but it was too rough to land. Lord Howard de Walden comes down with news that drafts have arrived unexpectedly for us as well, and we have to prepare for them. Cannot reconcile the arrival of all these troops with the opinion that we are here for the winter. Looks as if we are going to have another battle. Turks very quiet this morning. Yet they must see all these troops arriving. We wonder that they do not shell them. Go up to 86th and 88th Brigades with Way in the afternoon, and it makes a very pleasant walk. Delightful country, and up at the brigades it seems quite restful after the shelled beaches. Pass General Delisle on the way up. Have tea at 86th and call at 88th on the way back. General Cayley had a narrow squeak a splinter of the case of shrapnel coming right through the roof of his dugout, just missing his head by inches. He won't have his roof sandbagged. Water question for our division now settled, as we have found wells all over the place. Just as it is getting dusk, 8-2 Turkish gun opens fire on the HMS Glory, but does not hit her, and Prince George replies. Walker arrives from Hellas. I am now officer commanding the 29th Division Army Service Corps at Suvla, as Carver has gone back to Hellas. Large coveys of birds, I think they are duck and crane, keep on swooping about over the peninsula, and our Tommies pot at them now and again. October 10th. Colder this morning, but flies still damnable. Usual artillery duels, but not so heavy as usual. Several officers leaving to join Allied troops at Salonica, but later we hear that they have not been allowed to land, as it is uncertain whether Greece is coming in against us. Not much shelling all day. Colonel Elkin, 1st London, arrives at night, and we put him up, giving him dinner and a bed in our dugout. Very decent old boy. He comes along with the most wonderful rumors, which we drink in. End of section 17